You're listening to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ, taken from the weekly homilies of interim pastor Michael Lansman. Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. So last week we learned about patterns and proclamation. We, we talked about the general pattern of Christian worship, why we worship the way we do. We talked about the pattern of gathering, and in the gathering we have the call to worship, and then after the call to worship, once we are confronted with the beauty and the holiness of God, we are then led into confession, and then once we confess our sins, we are then absolved of them through the promise of the gospel, like what we just did this morning. We talked a little bit about how our culture needs confession, and about how when, we, when, when church kind of loses this idea of confession, that even secular people are looking for confession, and we talked about popular ways that that's shown up in media. Uh, and then we talked about the second part of the shape of Christian worship is listening, hearing the word of God proclaimed, that God, as whoever stands in the pulpit is standing in the pulpit, that God is actually speaking, that as we faithfully interpret and, and proclaim the scriptures, that God is speaking to us directly. And then we talked about communing, which we're going to actually focus on a little bit today. Uh, the Eucharist. And then, number four, we talked about sending, how now after we've reenacted God's story of salvation through the pattern of the service, we are then sent out as Jesus' disciples into the world to fulfill the Great Commission. And so we talked about how this is a repetitive pattern, how this forms our hearts towards God, and how it recalibrates our loves towards him and his kingdom. The word and the table, the proclamation of the gospel, and the table of communion. These two are linked together and we need we need both. So we learned about the word of God, about how we proclaim God's saving story, what God has done, and then we also talked about how God is relational and how we see in scripture that God doesn't God calls people into relationship with himself. And we see this in the scripture through Israel and through the church and God's desire for Israel to be a light to other nations. So now that we've learned about the word of God last week, and how it is God speaking to us. Today, because we're actually having communion today, we're going to talk about the table, the word and the table. So I'm just going to read a short portion out of the Gospel of John here, John chapter 6. And here Jesus says this in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's interesting, Jesus linking himself identifying himself as the manna in the Old Testament that came down from heaven that fed the ancestors of the children of Israel. So when we think about communion or the Eucharist, there's many different popular attitudes towards communion, right? And so one of those popular attitudes is that it's merely symbolic. It's just something that represents something greater. Or it's just something that we do to remember what Jesus did. It just, it's just we do it so we think about Jesus, think about what he's done, and say to ourselves, that was really great of you to do that for us, Jesus. 
Or it's just an act of obedience that we do to show God that we're serious about our faith. Or you might even hear, have heard that something spiritual takes place at the table, but we can't quite figure out what it is. I remember, for me, as a young child, the, the first memory I ever have of communion, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember I was with my mom and dad, and we were, I don't remember what church we were at, I can't remember if we were at a Methodist, Methodist church or a Lutheran church, we were on vacation somewhere, and we were attending a service. And I remember they handed out the elements, the, the little glass and the bread. And I remember when I received them, I didn't look what was going on. I was a kid. And so I ate the bread as soon as I got it, and I drank the juice as soon as I got it. And my mom looked at me and saw that I had eaten when she still had her elements in her hand, and she's like, what did you do? And I'm like, well, I was hungry, so I ate the bread, and I drank the cup. <laughs> and then my mom then took that moment to teach me a lesson about what communion is. And it terrified me. <laughs> so, Mom, if you're listening to this, I love you. Because she took me to the passage in 1 Corinthians, where St. Paul says, those who partake in an unworthy manner are guilty of the body and the blood of Christ, and some of you have fallen asleep. And I got really scared. But I remember when that happened, it was the first time I kind of grasped that there was something really significant happening. And I didn't have the, word, I didn't have the understanding to kind of to, to explain it or to kind of understand what was going on. All I knew that it was something spiritual and that it was something holy, and that memory kind of stayed, stayed in my mind. So those popular attitudes that I've just mentioned, they've become sort of the de facto theology of, of lots and lots of churches, so much so that the late theologian named Robert Reber, he wrote this, that the central crisis of worship is the de-supernaturalization of table worship. So what he's saying is one of the biggest mistakes that many, of, many churches make is that we've removed anything supernatural from when we come to the table. That there's nothing supernatural about it. It's just something that we do. And he says that it's a great crisis and that we've lost something. And it, I think he's right. It's a sad consequence of history that communion just becomes one more thing that we do in a service and then only once in a while. And we can trace this in history. You know, the early church up until, even through the Reformation, communion was something that was done regularly. It was part of the worship. And we can kind of trace, like we don't have to get deep into history, but there's a, a couple of reformers there who, who saw communion as just a memorial. It's just a memorial. It's just to help us remember. And this, this memorialness creates a divide within the Christians of the Reformation between him and pretty much everybody else, like Luther and Calvin, who celebrated communion regularly and who had a high view of communion. And so most, many churches have gone this other direction. And I think also the table has been removed, all the supernatural aspects have been removed from it is because many churches... Not us, we're good, but lots of churches suffer from what I, I've heard referred to, and it's funny, Romophobia. Have you ever heard that expression, Romophobia? We're st- many churches are scared to attach anything supernatural to the table because they don't want to be seen as Roman Catholic, and we don't like Roman Catholics, so we don't believe what they believe, so anything that even seems like is Roman Catholic, we put our walls up and we want to guard against 
And brothers and sisters, there are things about Roman Catholic doctrines that we don't affirm. That's why we're here and not at a Roman Catholic church, right? That's why we're here at Science Stone, because we have theological distinctives. But that doesn't mean, because we don't share some of those distinctives, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything supernatural going on at the table. And also, another reason why is the supernatural in our world doesn't really exist for us anymore. Or if it does exist for us, it's sort of like this general quasi-pagan spirituality. Spiritual but not religious. Or you can believe this, I can believe that, and everything will be fine. We don't really believe that God is an actor, that God shows up, that God is everywhere present, the scripture tells us. He's omnipresent. He fills all things. Creation declares the glory of God, St. Paul says in Romans. And many people are quick to believe in angels and demons and visions, but many of us just can't wrap our minds around the fact that in the Eucharist we are feeding on Christ and we're partaking of Christ. And it's interesting how this supernaturalism and this anti-supernaturalism kind of plays out in our culture because on one hand, people will say, I can't believe that Jesus stuff. I can't believe that God became human and died on a cross. I can't believe that in the table we are partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. But I can believe in fairies. (laughs) And I'm not making this up. It was an actual conversation with somebody I had a couple years ago. They were telling me, we were talking about faith, and, whoa, tell the president I'll call him later. Please, I'll call him later. I have a lot, I got a, I got a lot to say to him, so tell him to be ready. <laughs> there was a lady that I was having a conversation with. We were talking about faith, and she's asking, well, I'm a Christian, we believe this, and we believe that. And I asked, well, what do you believe? She's like, well, I believe in fairies and pixies. And I thought she was joking. And I laughed. And I was like, no, really? She's like, no, I believe in fairies and pixies and... And it's so weird how we can, how many people have jettisoned the outrageous claims of Christianity to embrace this. They can believe this supernatural thing, but this other supernatural thing, no. We can't really go there. We can't really go there. So when I was reading about this and researching this, I decided to go back a little bit to see how the church early on has understood the Eucharist or communion. So St. Ignatian Ignatius, excuse me, in his letter to the Trallians, which was written in about 108, right? So we're still really early. In 108, he said this. He's speaking about a group of unbelievers. They hold aloof from the Eucharist and from services of prayer because they refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which in his goodness the Father raised from the dead. Then St. Justin Martyr, in his book, The First Apology, where he's writing a defense of the Christian faith to one of the emperors, this is in the year probably around 147. So this is still very early in the church, okay? He says this, But as Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so likewise we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, and from which our blood and flesh by transformation are nourished, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. And I'll give you one more from the year, around about 350, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. He said this, Consider not the bread and wine as mere elements, for they are the body and blood of Christ. Judge not the matter of the taste, but from faith. Be fully assured without misgiving that the body and blood of Christ have been given to to you. Notice he said that, Judge not the matter of taste, but from faith. This is interesting. So, 
Let me offer a little brief aside, because we have some people in here who used to be Roman Catholic, and we have some people who, are, who have family members who are Roman Catholic. So we're going to talk a little bit for a second about transubstantiation, all right? That's the explanation of how the elements are transformed, right? So this develops a lot later. And what it does is, is it tries to explain how it occurs. So people are asking questions. Okay, well, if it becomes the body and the blood of Christ, how come it still tastes like bread, and how come it still tastes like wine? So theologians and scholars thought about it and, 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 and wrote about it, and over the years they came up with this idea. And they used the best philosophy of their day to kind of try and figure out how it actually happens. But here's the interesting thing, brothers and sisters. The scriptures, the church fathers originally, don't, they don't try to explain how it happens. They don't try to explain the how. They believe it's a divine mystery, right? We'll hear when we pray later, when we ask, when we thank God for partaking of his life-giving mysteries. They believe it is a mystery. That it's centered on Jesus Christ, about him becoming human, dying, being raised from the dead for our salvation. Centered on his incarnation, his death and resurrection. So, the theologian Weber, he, he notes a couple of things that communion discloses to us, or communion shows us. He, he says that communion shows us the union of God and humanity. The bread and the wine show us how our union with God is accomplished, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Just as he united divinity with humanity, he unites us with God. And then the sacrifice of Christ and the bread and the wine, Jesus suffered for us, and we are united with Jesus in his suffering for our salvation. Then the third thing it discloses to us, victory over powers of evil. And those buzzing bees in the corner, that stupid wind. (laughs) Communion discloses to us the victory over the powers of evil. That Jesus has triumphed over all of the powers of evil. All spiritual wickedness, all spiritual powers. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has triumphed over them and has conquered them. He's also triumphed over not only the spiritual powers that are invisible, but he's also triumphed over the temporal powers. He is above all rulers and governments. He is over all things. The kingdoms of this world are giving way to the kingdoms of our God. And then the fourth thing that communion discloses to us is the redemption of the world. In the reading from Zephaniah, we heard that that declaration of the coming day of the Lord, where the prophet Zephaniah says, Be silent before the Lord. We have been prepared. Communion is the place where we can come to that, to be silent before the Lord, where we are being prepared, where our hearts are being formed in his image. And communion shows us God's coming redemption of the world. St. Paul says in Romans that creation groans, just like we do, for the revealing of the sons of God, because it's not just about our own salvation. God is also redeeming and renewing and restoring all creation. And so communion is a powerful symbol of Christ's victory made visible to the world. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. His victory looks like what? It looks like a defeat, right? It looks like a defeat. But when I break the bread and when I hold up the chalice, the body and the blood of Christ, we are proclaiming to the world Christ's victory. That when it looked like an act of defeat is actually an act of God's victory. And when we eat and drink we are participants in what God is doing. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. And brother, what, brothers and sisters, what are we given to taste, to see that the Lord is good? We are given the bread. And in some church circles, you might hear this. You may have heard it yourself. Somebody will say, if they've heard really good preaching, they'll say, I really felt like I was fed by that message. Has anybody ever heard that? I have. Or if there was a service that they didn't like and they didn't like the sermon, they'll say, I, I'm not really feeling fed at this church, so I need to go find another church because the sermons aren't good. They're not feeding me. Now, there's, there, there's an aspect that which that's true, that we are still somehow fed by the preaching of the Word of God. But it's interesting how we've relegated being fed to just hearing and not actually eating, not actually tasting. The theologian Alexander Schmemann said this, And since God created the world as food for us and has given us food as means of communion with him, of life in him, the new food of the new life, which we receive from God in his kingdom, is Christ himself. He is our bread, because from the very beginning, all of our hunger was a hunger for him. And all of our bread was but a symbol of him, a symbol that had to become reality. What he's saying here, which is so interesting, is that our hunger for everything is actually a hunger for Christ. And our hunger for Christ is met and is satisfied by the preaching of the word and at the table. That's why regular communion is important. That's why regular communion is necessary because Jesus says, we just read it in the Gospel of John, if you do not eat my flesh, if you do not drink my blood, things, you'll be okay. No, he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, what does he say? You don't have life in you. That's a hard saying. That's hard saying. And even after Jesus says it in the, in the Gospel of John, a bunch of his disciples, what do they do? They leave. And what do they say when they leave? This is hard. <laughs> this is hard. We don't understand. See you, Jesus, we're out of here. And then Peter, and Jesus is walking away, and then Peter and the twelve and a few of the other ones are following Jesus, and Jesus turns to them and he says, what, you're not going to leave too? And, Jesus, and Peter and the disciples, they actually got it for once. Peter says, where else are we going to go? You, are, you have the words of life. You have the words of life. So brothers and sisters, when we come to the table, we are somehow spiritually, we don't know, we don't know how it happens. We don't know. All we know is, is that it is. We don't know how it works. It's a divine mystery. But when we come to the table, we're not just sitting there eating a piece of bread and drinking a little bit of wine or a cup of juice. We are actually being united with Christ. We are feeding on Christ, and the life of Christ is being given to us. We are being given to us. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's kind of a hard message to think about. Not a hard message, but on one hand, we, we define, I think, ourselves, churches, I think, define themselves too much by what they don't believe. We don't believe what these guys believe, but we believe this over here. And I don't want us to be that way. All we know is, is when we come to the table, something spiritual is happening, something holy is happening, and as such, we approach it with reverence, with fear, and with hope that God will do what he has promised in his word. And so, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting, and is all holy good.
and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast for Zion's Stone United Church of Christ. We're located in beautiful Northampton, Pennsylvania, and we'd love for you to come worship with us. You can find us on the internet, www.zionsstoneucc.com, or you can find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC. God bless. Thanks for listening.